Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm speaking with Bernard Dionysus Gagan about computer graphics. Bernard, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. So thank you for having me here today. I am a reader in the history and theory of digital media at the Department of Digital Humanities at King's College London. And I also work sometimes as a curator. All right. And so tell us, what the heck are computer graphics? So computer graphics, you know, they're all around us. We all kind of are seeing digital images every time we lift up our computer or open our phone. Even when you see a billboard in the street, it's probably been produced in some connection with computer graphics. What I'm really interested in in this book project I have is thinking about computer graphics as technologies of mapping, to borrow a term from Ranjit Singh Dalibal, techniques of addressing. Digital images tend to be oriented into something like bitmaps. They tend to be oriented towards mapping an expanse, a visual expanse, making it calculable, and determining how do you assign different colors and ratios across a mathematical sphere. What's a little different from a, say, a photograph or a drawing is that almost all computer graphics are really about the mathematical mapping and addressing of some type of expanse. Once we start getting into colors or tones, you know, that starts even mapping perception itself. Um, so they're, they're mapping and addressing technologies, I would say. Okay. In the term you chose computer, I wonder how that's different from digital. Yes. Yeah. It's a really helpful question because it gets to the history I'm interested in. The reason I'm interested in the term computer graphics as opposed to digital images is when we talk about digital images, I think it's very easy to start thinking about modern digital computers, personal computers, the web, even to move towards some type of ontology of what is the digital. When I look at the modes of seeing and perceiving that go on with a computer screen or a cell phone, I see them in a larger history of computational practices that include, for example, 18th and 19th century navigation, maritime techniques, early advances in astronomy. Right? So a lot of astronomy in connection with navigation in the course of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century was really about figuring out how do you take points in the sky like stars and make them computable so you can figure out where you are on the ocean to make sure that you end up in the right place. And then I see that transmuted into technologies like radar of the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. These are computational images. They're electronic images. They're not necessarily digital images in the way we encounter in computers today. But in order to understand this visuality that surrounds us, these computational pictures all around us, I want to say, well, let's look at a longer history of ways of making visual expanses computable that is you know, embodied in contemporary computers, embodied in digital technologies, but maybe not specific 
to the digital computer in the way we normally think about that. Yeah, totally. Thinking about that history, let me ask you our second question, which is how do I use computer graphics? You know, my first answer is I sort of feel like computer graphics use us. Okay. As computer systems start getting complex in the course of the 20th century, and you start getting things like continental radar systems and so forth. So we're you know, really talking the 1950s, 1960s in the US. They start developing interfaces that are visual because you need to do real-time feedback between humans and machines. For example, to figure out, is that really a missile? Do you want to shoot down that plane? What are we dealing with? And so in that sense, early computer graphics are about incorporating a human into a feedback system. Harun Fofroki talks about operational images. Okay. You know, he says our new digital, electronic, and video images, somehow they're about completing operations. It could be in manufacturing, it could be in war. And what the image does is it kind of plugs the human into the system to offer useful dynamic feedback. Once we're dealing with something like a cell phone, the visual interface of the device is a key thing to making us use the device, you know, to make us constantly interacting with it. So among other things, our cell phones can gather lots and lots of data. And so that's why like, I'm really interested in the automatic geotagging of JPEG images. As we are interacting with visual interfaces, as we're trying to uh, interact with these complex systems, the computer graphics are a way that our devices can use us to gather information about the world. Okay, so I have a question following up on that. Two of the technologies that you mentioned, radar and cell phones, yes. also have an audio history, right? Uh -huh. um, so radar was an audio technology before it was a visual technology, and yes. cell phones didn't always have those fancy screens, right? Yes. I wonder what's the relationship between the visual and the audio here? That's a really helpful question. And I'll just use that to give a shout out to a colleague. When I was working on radar, someone in Germany, Christoph Borbach, said, oh, well, what about sonar? Right. The way I would sort of come at this is I sort of grasp computer graphics as almost always being multimedia. So when I write the history of radar, I'm really interested in how early control technologies, say in the course of World War One, they had this famous Sperry battle tracer system that you could use to target and locate enemy ships in the 1910s. And it had a team of people distributed across the ship, some of which were doing visual spotting, some of which were listening for something like splashes in the water so you could tell when you shot something through the air. Okay. You could tell by counting seconds how far it went and where it landed. So you had visual techniques, you had audio techniques, you had a lot of cognitive operations. And out of this complex system, you have a system of targeting that, to speak in a kind of old school Latorian term, at the obligatory point of passage is graphical interfaces. Okay. I'm really looking at what's mostly a kind of totalizing system for incorporating human judgment into computers through, you know, multi-sensory apparatus. And I'm trying to say, we're getting notifications from our cell phone all the time. It's buzzing, it's beeping, we're responding to it. Uh -huh. Most, not all, most of our reactions to these are we look at it, we visualize, we start clicking back and forth. Maybe we feel something vibrant in our pocket. And again, the primary point of passage is that visual graphical interface, that graphical user interface. Uh -huh. But exactly what you're saying, sound, 
touch, very, very rarely smell. I'm going to make a footnote here. I maybe this is something yeah. that needs to, I don't know whether this needs to be cut out or whether this is actually uh, one of the more interesting anecdotes. Yeah. One of the things I love about like early computerized radar, late 50s, early 60s, the operator's screens for the SAGE defense system used by the US military had ashtrays in it. Okay. Because, okay, like maintaining constant vigilance and also being ready for doing battle with, you know, literal atomic and nuclear threats. That's where digital graphics come out of. Yeah. It actually, people could do that better when they can smoke. You know what I mean? When they can fidget with their fingers. And so smell and taste are actually part of that total system. It's a little arbitrary that that's not so important now, but, you know, maybe it exists in other ways. Can you, can you imagine a cell phone with a built-in ashtray? Oh, you know, vaping <laughs> is not so far away. Yeah, totally. I don't know if they're all like this, but my partner's mom actually has a vape pen that you charge with a USB connector. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like... it's amazing. But to be a little kind of paradigm, I'm interested in how computers are trying to constantly capture everything. They're trying to capture space. They're trying to capture our attention. They're trying to mobilize the world. And to me, there is something about the cigarette becoming a quasi-USB device that's a little electronic that feels to me about something about this tendency of computers to kind of plug all the senses of the world into the network in a strange manner. Yeah. No, okay. So like on the user side, there's all these different sensory connections that are feeding in and then the obligatory point of passage where we hit the computer. Yeah almost always occurs at the computer graphic, at the visual interface. I think so. I think so. There's probably different particular histories of computer graphics. For example, Mar Mills has written about disability and computing and the way certain forms of information theory took clues from teaching and training the deaf. So even this history, I'm sure there's alternate histories that could twist it a little bit. Yeah. But I think we live in a kind of ocular-centric society yeah. that uses visuality in a privileged mode. Totally. And so when I talk about computer graphics, I think that's a quick instantaneous way of interacting with machines intuitively that has pervaded our environment. It's dominant, but that doesn't mean it can be treated exclusive from the other senses. Totally. Let me ask you our final question which is how will computer graphics save the world? So what I would emphasize to be more like, how does it make a world? Okay. If we're looking at navigation in the 18th and 19th century, you know, graphical mathematical methods to map space, radar or cell phones, you know, I'm interested in how all these computational visual means help us articulate and navigate the world, help us connect to other places. Of course, it can help make your world safe and secure if it makes it more navigable. But also, in most of these cases, to kind of work with a computer graphic is somehow to plug into a larger network of standards and agencies that you trust to collect and exchange and circulate your image, probably to assign you a place in the world. And in that, the old-fashioned ways, it's a process of worlding. Uh -huh. But then on some broader level, I look at someone like Paul Edwards who talks about climate models, right? The only way you can get an account of climate change is if you have some type of belief in these global information networks that are modeling our world. And for that, we need to have a little bit of trust and belief in information. We can't think these are all just simulations. We can't just think it's not real because it's technical and artificial. Yeah. Part of me believes that in order to care for our world, 
in order to confront the way in which we're all in a kind of planetary, highly fragile network, we need to have some way to work with these graphics to recognize their tenuous but quite real reality and have a grasp of how that ties us all together in a common endeavor. Yeah. Is there anything that you think ought to change about technical images or computer graphics? This is where I'm going to again become like slightly fantastical. Yeah. I'm very interested in the real-time nature of computer graphics. Uh-huh. Our computer graphics are often meant to respond to crisis situations. So when Faroki talks about operational images, you know, he's saying, well, these operational images, for example, in the Iraq war, you know, they're trying to respond to the changing battlefield really rapidly. And I have some reason that this is why our cell phones and computers and everything are kind of anxiety engines. We're constantly relating to these devices as if we need to constantly receive incoming signals from around the world and respond to them quickly to kind of avoid catastrophe. I think that's <laughs> hardwired into real-time digital networks. And even in a way that these images are meant to mobilize constant vigilance, the attention economy to me is like a weird commercial product or spinoff of watching the horizon for Soviet missiles. I think there needs to be some way to rethink our technical network so that they're not constantly sounding alarms, yeah. that they're not buzzing, they're not beeping, they're not constantly calling for instantaneous response. I don't know how, as a cultural critic, we reorganize the planetary just-in-time economy to say, stop sending us so many false alarms. Yeah, I feel like we live in a state of low-grade terror because our digital graphics come out of these histories of war and dire environmental threat. And there has to be some design solution that could help us relate to these networks differently through their visual means. Totally. I think that might be a good note to end on. Can I wrap up just by giving shout out to a couple other colleagues? Totally, totally. When you work on a project, it's so hard to constantly acknowledge the people you owe debts to. Just for thinking about computer graphics in terms of addressability and mapping, uh-huh. Ranja Dalival Singh, but also Teodora Varduli and Daniel Cardozo Locke. They've written a lot about architecture and design and computer images. So this thinking of spatiality owes a lot to them, as well as Jacob Gabri at UC Berkeley, whose book Image Objects has really helped me think this through. Also, Shane Dedson has this wonderful book on decorrelated images. Uh-huh. You know, Shane's written a lot about how and why digital images have this strange way of shuffling our relationship to the world. So a lot of what I'm saying is responding to him. And then one other person I might mention, Birgit Schneider in Germany has written these wonderful, deep media archaeological histories of how computer graphics relate to things like weave it. Cool. So I just wanted to say everything I talk about is already in dialogue with a lot of people to whom I have deep debts. That's a really generous thing to do. So thank you so much for coming to talk with us. But thank you so much for talking. I really enjoyed this. Cool. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast sticks. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. 